0: We are beginning this morning with a new series that will last for about four weeks looking at the subject of biblical church membership and discipline. This will be about four weeks. If you haven't been here or if you're visiting, um, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we are taking about a five-week break From that, we looked at uh, the glory of motherhood last week as we celebrated Mother's Day together. And then, as I said, for the next four weeks, we will be looking at what Scripture says about membership and discipline. I hope uh, and I'm praying that this this journey, as we, we take for about four weeks, will prove to be helpful and clarifying for you. Old Baptists used to call this subject the lifeblood of the church. That's how they described it. Membership and discipline, they said, was the lifeblood of the church. It's what makes it move. So I hope that's what it proves to be and to do for us And so as we begin this morning, I just want to read with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9 and going down to verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that the words that we just read probably concern us. We are looking, Lord, at a doctrine and a practice within the church that most of us have probably never seen nor heard of before. And so, Father, as we go through your word this morning, I ask only that you would indeed do what your Spirit has been promised to do for us, namely, to give us hearts that submit to Your will. And Father, I pray that as, as we see what Your Word says to us as a church, that we would not rebel or kick against it, but that we would understand and grasp that Your will and Your ways... Give us life. So, Father, give us hearts to understand and to receive your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may be wondering, of all the subjects to look at, to take a four-week break from the gospel of John, spend time looking at why membership and discipline. You could preach on the love of God. You could preach on His mercy, His forgiveness. You could preach on discipleship and evangelism. Why membership and discipline? For others, you may have already concluded the next four weeks are going to be about some unbiblical practice that's nothing more than the preacher's hobby horse. Maybe. For others, you may be a little sympathetic to some form of membership. You've seen that practiced, at least in some form, kind of familiar with it. But the discipline part brings to mind some negative thoughts, some discomfort. You hear discipline, and you think about some unloving, vengeful, medieval practice. It's very reminiscent of Roman Catholic way of excommunicating people and perhaps even putting them to death. Or at the least, shunning them. And disowning them. Still for others, you may be thinking a little bit more practically. We're already a small church. Why are we going to even entertain The idea of something like discipline, that doesn't make any sense. Won't that scare people away? Well, I want to begin by acknowledging that for some of you, maybe even most of you, there might be some of these concerns some uncertainties, maybe even some fears. And this is part of the reason why I think it's necessary to spend the next four weeks looking at this. We could probably spend way more time doing it, but at least the next four weeks, so that we can, as we work through passages of Scripture, Lord willing, have some clarification on what, these doctrines actually are, and the importance of them. And quite frankly, this kind of subject cannot be adequately addressed in one message. And I assume that even after the next four weeks, and I hope and pray that this is the case, that we will continue to talk about these very things, because I would imagine even more questions will come up. So what I've done is planned four different sermons that I hope simply demonstrate the biblical foundation and necessity for membership and discipline, and then also to clarify what they actually look like in practice. So the first sermon today, I simply just want to walk through various passages of Scripture to show that church membership is something that is indeed biblical. This is not just some man-made practice or something that just helps us do church better. It is something that is, in fact, biblical. In the second sermon, next week, we're going to look at the obligations or the duties of church members as well as the benefits that come to church members. And then third... The third week, we'll look at the biblical case for church discipline, really beginning in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, because it's not just in a couple of chapters. So we'll look at the whole Bible and what it says about that particular matter, and then finally, we'll look at what it actually looks like in practice, looking at a few biblical examples. But before we begin this morning, let me just tell you why I also believe this is a necessary subject to look at. And emphasis there on necessary. Non-optional, but absolutely necessary. I don't believe that you can read the New Testament. Especially as it speaks directly on the nature of the church and come away with the conclusion that church membership and discipline are irrelevant or optional and still have a church. I'll say that in a different way. In other words, church membership and discipline which are just the two, they're two sides of the same coin. Talking about the same thing. One dealing with basically the entrance and maintenance of people into the church. The other dealing with the departure of them from the church. Two sides of the same coin. Church membership and discipline are one of the defining marks of an actual church. If they're absent, so also is the church. That's the conclusion the New Testament forces us to. And that's not some novel idea. This is not something that has just come up within the last couple of decades. Historically, this is what Christians have always believed. Every generation of Christians from the beginning where the apostles laid the foundation of the church and all the way up until about 100 to 120 years ago. Every generation of Christians you look at, all the major confessions of the major denominations in church, historical Baptists, Presbyterians, even Roman Catholics, These things were vital to what actually defined a church. John L. Dagg was a Baptist theologian who wrote around the 1800s, and he said that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. He was a representative of many of our early Baptist forefathers. Let me just ask you this, this question. What makes up an actual church? What defines what a church is? How do you distinguish, for example, biblically, the church from any other organization or institution, Christian or otherwise? What are the marks of a church. It can't simply be the gathering of a group of Christians. I try to meet fairly often with some local pastors in town. And when we meet together, we have a group of Christians meeting together, talking about the Bible, talking about the church, celebrating the glory of God. We are Christians gathered together. We're not the church, though. We are individuals who are each members and part of local churches, but as we come together, we're not the church. It can't be just the preaching and singing of the Word of God. Just last month, Leah and I drove up to Louisville to go to T4G, g Conference where there were thousands, 10,000 Christians from all over the world gathered together for no other reason except to hear the Word preached and to sing the Word together. But that wasn't the church. We weren't the church. We were 10,000 different people coming from different churches, but we weren't the church. It can't be that there is an organized structure and gospel-centered ministries either. That can't be what defines a church. Parachurch organizations have that very same thing, like Hope House. Hope House has a structure with a board of trustees, with volunteers, with directors, and their entire existence is about gospel-centered ministry. Ministering to those who are low-income or no-income people in Bowling Green. And not just to help them in their financial difficulties, but they also desire to make disciples. To teach the Word of God. But they're not the church. These are things that churches do. These are ministries that churches do, but they're not a church. In fact, they would tell those who they are discipling that as a part of their discipleship, they need to make sure they join a local church. Because we at Hope House are not the local church. According to the Bible... In historic Christian confessions, the church is found where there is the right preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and tied very closely to that, the presence of membership and discipline. Those are the three marks of the church. And membership and discipline, like I said, are tied very closely to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because it is through baptism that you become a member of the local church. And it is by the Lord's Supper that you are continued to be identified with that body of Christ. Close together. These are your marks of an actual church. Where these are, there also is the church. You can strip away all of the bells and whistles. You can bulldoze this building. Flatten it to the ground. You can cancel Sunday school, you can remove any and all age segregated ministries like youth, college and career, singles, young married couples, family, young adult, old adult, women, men, you can take them all away, leave yourself with simply the preached word, the ordinances and the membership and discipline of the church and there you have a church and indeed you can have a very vibrant church with those very simple marks. You can create all of these different ministries and events, but sacrifice one of these marks and you're left without a church. So this subject is necessary and vital to actually having a church. But additionally, and perhaps somewhat a little bit more surprising, I want to preach on membership and discipline because it's necessary for a real revival. It is necessary for a real revival. I'm not talking about the kind of revivals that probably many of us are familiar with where you actually schedule them. Put them on your calendar. We're having a revival the next week. I am talking about a real surprising work of the Holy Spirit. A work where many sinners are not only convicted of sin and are saved, but whose lives are so transformed that they're not only simply called Christians, but are recognizably holy men and women of God, zealous for God's Word and His mission and His people and His church, renewed with a devotion to His glory and His glory alone. The greatest hindrance, friends, to a real spiritual renewal in churches today is the prevalence of sinful and ungodly members that's the real hindrance and that includes pastors when i say members a pastor is a member of the church that is the greatest hindrance the presence of sinful and ungodly members who sin is never checked by the church through biblical membership and discipline. Fornication, adultery, false doctrine, pornography, bitterness, divisions, divorces, abuse, these are the kinds of things, sadly, sadly you can expect to find in the vast majority of churches in our culture, everywhere. And what does that do for the church's evangelistic mission? It kills it. It's gone. If we look around in the society, and we see all these issues, and we, we point to these different things that are going wrong in the world And we're troubled by those things. And we are saying that the world needs to repent. The world doesn't need to repent unless the church repents first. Because in many places we're no different. But even more, even more than our evangelistic mission being killed, the kind of tolerance... That we have for sin in the church, guarantees for the church, not revival, but judgment. That's what it guarantees. The removal of the lampstand. Christ departing from the building and the people. Early Baptists understood this well and believed that the membership practices, the purity of the church, and the discipline of the church were vital to true revival. And they had good reasons to believe this as well, not just from what they saw in Scripture, as we will see this morning and in the coming weeks, but from their own experience. These things were not just hypothetical. These things were not just theological conclusions they had reached and didn't actually experience them. They had good reason to believe that discipline and biblical membership is vital to revival because that's what they saw. Gregory Wills, is a Baptist historian, wrote that Baptists maintained high rates of discipline, high rates of discipline, at the same time, they experienced rapid growth. Nationally, he says, Baptists drew 1.9 times faster than the population, from 67,000 Baptists in 1790 to 1 million in 1860. In Georgia, they grew 2.3 times faster than the population, from 3,340 in 1790 to 99,149 in 1860. In Southern democratic religion, he wrote, discipline and revival appeared to go together, not separate. So this is why I think this subject is important. It's important if we're going to be a church, number one. And it is important if we want and desire revival, real revival. So with that being said, I want to just look at various passages of Scripture with you this morning so that we can see that church membership beginning is, in fact, biblical and necessary. By church membership, I'm simply referring to the practice by which corporately a local church declares who is and who is not the church, okay? And individually... By church membership, I mean when a person voluntarily submits themselves out of repentance and faith in Christ to the authority of the local congregation. So church membership has to do with the church recognizing and affirming the genuine salvation of others and welcoming them to the Lord's table with them with communion as well as endeavoring together to faithfully love one another in accordance with Scripture. That's a rough definition of what church membership is. Now, church membership, we need to begin by simply saying, it is not a practice that has a chapter and verse commanding it explicitly in Scripture. That has to be acknowledged. There is, no, there is no actual chapter and verse that says, this is what church membership is and how it should be done. And because of that, many have concluded that church membership is therefore unbiblical. But I would argue that we ought not to make that conclusion based on that argument. Nowhere do you find in Scripture any verse saying, this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. And yet, at the same time, we affirm as Orthodox Christians that God as a Holy Trinity has eternally existed as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't not believe that and be Christian. Neither do you find any verse in all of the New Testament, where Jesus explicitly says, I am God. You're not going to find that anywhere. Yet we worship Him as God. We submit to Him as God. And the reason is because what you do find are verses all over the New Testament that speak about Jesus existing from all eternity. You find verses all throughout the New Testament that speak about Jesus being the one through whom all creation came, excuse me, came into existence. He's the Creator, therefore. And you find passage after passage that speaks about Jesus being the one who has the authority to send the Holy Spirit into the world. You could go on and on and on and find verses in the New Testament that attribute to Christ things that can only be applied to God. So that's why we legitimately conclude that Jesus is God. There's not an explicit verse, but there's page after page after page that has implications that force us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, it's the same thing. Same thing when it comes to church membership. There's not just one verse that says, this is what church membership is. But there are numerous passages calling for certain actions by the church which assume, imply, and require the practice of church membership. And it's those kinds of passages that I want to set before you in our remaining time. So if you need to, take notes. Write these verses down. Listen to the implication of these verses. If if you don't have an open Bible, you may in fact be bored through the rest of this. It is going to be good that together we look at the Word of God and see what it says and ask the right questions of the Word. We need to be like Bereans. The Bereans who heard the Gospel and studied the Scriptures to see if these things were actually so. So first... The first thing that leads us in the direction of concluding that church membership is biblical is the fact that there are passages which require the church to make distinctions between who is part of the fellowship and who is not. So there are verses that require the church to make distinctions between who is in and who is out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. is the passage we read together earlier, and it's a passage that we will continue to return to in the coming weeks. The context in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is that there is a man in the church... Identifying himself as a brother in Christ. Identifying himself as a follower of Jesus. And yet he is engaged in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Presumably his stepmother. They are involved physically together. And Paul has received a report about this and he commands the church to immediately remove this man from the fellowship of the church, which in practice means that they can no longer recognize him as a member of the body, at least until there's repentance and therefore they are to bar him from access to the Lord's Supper. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, let him who has done this, the sexually immoral man, be removed from among you. As we move through the chapter, come to the end in verses 9 and following, Paul commands the church not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Which which is to say, if someone is claiming to be a Christian, if someone is identifying themselves with Christ and with His people, claiming to have experienced the new birth, claiming to have experienced the miraculous of God wherein He has been given a new heart, and been transformed into a new man, claiming to have the sin-killing power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, and he's living in open, unrepentant sin, then the church is not to recognize that person as a Christian. He may in fact be one, but the church has no authority To affirm Him as one. The church is obligated to make that judgment. Verse 12 gives the explanation. Paul says, "...for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge?" what I simply want to point out here is the distinction that is clearly made. There are outsiders, which Paul says the church has no judicial authority over. They have no authority to actually implement some kind of judicial disciplinary practice. Because they're not members. They're not a part of the church. So there's those who are outsiders, but there are also insiders who are submitted to the judicial authority of the church. I mean, that's that's part of what we do when we join a church, is we are saying, I am no longer my own. I belong to Christ. And I'm submitting myself as well to His people so that they as well can care for me. Pray for me. Correct me when I am going astray. That's love. That's family. And that assumes then that the church, this distinction between insiders and outsiders, assumes that the church knows who its members are. It knows who are the insiders, who its insiders are in its locality, and it knows who, are, uh, who is on the outside. So that's number one, the clear distinctions that are commanded for the church to do. Second, there are passages which require the church to remove people from its fellowship. So 1 Corinthians 5, again, is a perfect example. For Paul, it is not an unloving thing to do to allow this sexually immoral man to continue to identify himself with the body of Christ and with the church. If the church tolerates this kind of behavior in its midst whether it's because they have a wrong view of grace, whether it's because they have a wrong view of what love to your fellow man and fellow believer in Christ is, or whatever the reason may be, if it continues to recognize and affirm the Christian profession of faith that an unrepentant person is making, it's not only unloving towards that person... Because it gives him a false assurance of salvation, but most importantly, it brings the gospel and the name of Christ into disrepute. So the Corinthian church, as we see in chapter 5, was tolerating this man's sin. And it was of a kind, Paul says, that is not even tolerated among Pagans. In other words, you, church, what Paul is saying, you, church, are claiming to believe in the life-transforming power of the Gospel and are living worse than the pagans. What does that do to the name of Christ and the power of the Gospel? So Paul says, this man must be removed. Now here's the simple question. We'll look at this passage more, as I said, in the coming weeks. But how do you formally remove someone from an institution or an organization unless they are already recognized as formal members of it? How do you do that? if I'm a member of a country club and I have to pay my yearly dues to maintain that membership, and they call me one day and say, hey, it's, it's time for you to pay your dues, and I say, no, I'm not doing it. Then they remove me. They have the authority to remove me because I was a member of the club. But if... One day I got a call from a country club who I've never joined before, and they say, hey, we're going to remove you if you don't pay your dues. I'm going to say, I was never a member. What do you mean you're going to remove me? You don't have any authority to do that. I don't want to be a part of you. Right? It wouldn't make any sense. So the fact that we have this process in the New Testament of removing people from the recognized church assumes that a formal church membership was already in place. Third, we find places in the New Testament where people refused to join the church. So Acts 5 is a familiar chapter for many people. Recounts the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were a husband and wife, you'll remember, who sold their property and they gave the proceeds to the church. They sold everything they had and they gave it to the church. Only, when they did, they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Which is not a problem. They were under no obligation to sell all of their property and give it to the church to begin with. That wasn't the issue. The problem was that they lied about what they were giving and perhaps out of some desire for recognition said they were giving everything they had when they weren't. They wanted people to see them. And Ananias and Sapphira, they just sold everything they have and they gave it to the church. How great is that? But they didn't. They lied about it. So you know what God does? He judges them for lying to the apostles, lying to the Holy Spirit, thus lying to God. And he killed them on the spot. To most, that's probably not the best evangelistic strategy. Unless, of course, your evangelistic strategy has the glory of God as its supreme goal. His name, His power, His holiness being proclaimed above all. Luke goes on to tell us in Acts chapter 5 and verses 11 and following, and Great fear came upon the whole church, not surprising, and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What Luke means there is that people were unwilling to even come and hear the apostles preach and teach unless they were committed to doing the next step of actually joining with the believers, being added to the Lord, being added to the body, and identifying themselves as one of them and a follower of Jesus. Unless they were going to commit themselves to the body and to Christ, they didn't even show up. They weren't coming for all this madness. People are dying, we've heard. And I don't want any part of it. If I don't believe it. So here we have a text that teaches us that there were many who were unwilling to be recognized formally as believers. Fourth, there are passages which describe the church formally accounting for some of its members. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, for example, we went through that several months ago. Paul is giving instructions to Timothy about the church's obligation to take care of its widows. Its true widows. And he describes the qualifications that a widow must meet in order to be cared for financially by the church. She must be a true widow. Which means she has no other means of supporting herself. She has no family. She has no other way of eating and living. And as well, he describes other qualifications. And as he does, it's clear that one of the other qualifications is that a true widow who's going to be cared for by the church must clearly be recognized as a faithful believer. So, As I said, we saw that several months ago. But at the beginning of his list of qualifications, Paul says... Let a widow be enrolled. Let a widow be enrolled if she meets these qualifications. So the point for our purposes is that there was an enrollment. There was a listing. They didn't have the the printing press or anything like that, so they didn't have modern paper, but they certainly had ways of writing down lists on papyrus and other forms of writing materials. They had a list. And if someone rightly met the qualifications of being a true widow, she's enrolled. She's on the list. Some of the members are listed. Fifth, there are passages which recognize a majority decision by the church in receiving or restoring a repentant sinner into the fellowship of the church. Let me say that again. There are passages which recognize a majority decision by the church in receiving and restoring a repentant sinner into the fellowship of the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul appears to be speaking about the sexually immoral man that we learned about in 1 Corinthians 5. Most commentators believe this is the same person being discussed, only now, instead of in 1 Corinthians 5, some time has passed, and he's writing about this person again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And what we see that's different in chapter 2 is that the man has repented. He's repented. The discipline of the church has helped him to see his sin, and rather than going throughout his community proclaiming how mean the church is, that's not the action he took, rather than doing that, he has responded how a true believer will respond when something like this happens, when, when in unrepentant sin the church moves to remove the person from its midst he has responded how a true believer will respond he has repented and he has sought forgiveness from god and he has sought forgiveness from the church paul writes in second corinthians chapter 2 beginning at verse 5 and following now if anyone has caused pain he has caused it not to me but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love. Reaffirm your love. For him. Notice there that Paul refers to the punishment of the majority. The implication should be clear, of course. There's no way of accounting for a majority unless you have already accounted for the whole. There's no way to know that. How do you know if you have a majority decision if you don't know what the whole number is? And so Paul says the punishment of the majority is sufficient. You, now that this brother is repenting, is seeking forgiveness, you reaffirm your love for him. What the discipline of the church has aimed to do, not to shun him, not to make him feel like some worthless person, but to restore him to walking in faithfulness to Christ, what its aim was to do, it accomplished. Because he was a true believer. He came to recognize the sin. He repented. And the church is to welcome him back in freely. Let me just end with this last point. There's many others that we could point to, but... Let me just end with this last one, which is that passages that call for obedience to church leaders require formal church membership. Passages that call for obedience to church leaders require formal church membership. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now here's the question that should make the implication of these verses obvious. Whose souls are the leaders of a church watching over? Who are the people they are overseeing? Is it their unbelieving neighbors? Is it everyone in the city? Is that who the the leaders of the church are are watching over their souls? I mean, you understand that that work, to to, to watch over the souls. You, You have to be having some intimate conversations about spiritual things. It may be very uncomfortable. Is he talking about everyone in the city? I don't think so. I think that the souls they are watching over... And the ones that they have to give an account to the Lord for are church members. It's the flock of God. It's a recognized people. A formally recognized and distinguished from the world people. Church membership is a necessary prerequisite for pastors to rightly carry out their responsibilities in the church. And the reason goes back to something I said earlier. Pastors serve in and among the church. Church membership marks out who that church is. That's what it does. There's many other examples that we could... Offer up, this is just a sampling of some of the relevant texts for church membership. Friends, let me just close by saying this. If we're going to be faithful to the Bible, if we're going to obey our King, listen to His Word and submit to it, and therefore, if we're going to be Christians... Christians who submit to the will of the king, Christians who recognize that the king is working for our good and our joy and our eternal satisfaction that we experience even now and here in this life, in him and among the church. If that's the people we're going to be, then church membership is actually not optional. It's definitional. To who the church is. It is, as our Baptist forefathers said, the lifeblood of the church. It's how we watch over each other. It's how we care for one another in more than just superficial ways. Spiritual ways. Eternal ways that bear eternal fruit. These doctrines are not for our misery, but for our life. So let's commit ourselves to being obedient children of the living God. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you that as you have saved us and redeemed us, From the kingdom of Satan, you have brought us into an actual kingdom. It belongs to you. You have united us to a body and you have not left us without a word and without instruction on what the church is how she is to conduct herself as exiles and sojourners and lights in this world. Father, I just pray not only for our church, but just churches all over this nation where so much sin entangles us. Restore among us, Lord, a burden and a desire and a love to be a holy people set apart for your glory. And as you move us in this direction, Lord, pour out your Spirit in a mighty way and give us the revival we long for. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.